We are rapidly approaching the end of our study through the Ten Commandments. This morning we come to the Ninth Commandment, which is found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. And then our New Testament reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll just be reading two verses from that chapter, verse 25 and verse 29. This is God's inerrant word. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. It's really an amazing moment when you think of the final days of our Lord Jesus Christ. Particularly this morning, I think, of when he stood before Pontius Pilate, who represented the earthly authorities that governed Palestine at that time. And you think of what Jesus didn't say during his trial, For much of that trial, his mouth was closed, but there were a few statements that he did make. And one of them, if you really reflect upon what he said, was one of the most amazing claims to ever come from the lips of any human being. As he stood before Pilate, at one point he said, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That's an incredible claim for Christ to make. He was sent into this world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears his voice, listens to him. We are followers of Jesus Christ, I assume. If you're here this morning, it's because either you are a follower of Christ or you're very interested in being a follower of Jesus Christ. He is the one who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. He came to bear witness to the truth. And therefore, that is why the Tenth Commandment says to us, you shall not bear false witness. Truth personified, truth incarnated, stood before Pontius Pilate. And how did Pontius Pilate respond? We don't know tone of voice. We can't hear the tone of voice when we read the scriptures. But the words of the scriptures tell us that he said in response to Jesus' claim, what is truth? I think if you could hear a tone of voice in those words, you would have heard pure, dripping cynicism. I suspect that because Pilate didn't wait for an answer. He didn't believe that Jesus had an answer to give. And in that sense, Pilate was speaking for this fallen world that we live in. Matter of fact, of all the ages of history, I think we live in probably one of the most cynical of all ages of human history, a time when not only have people given up on the pursuit 
of any sense of absolute truth, but when they actually mock the idea that we could have absolute truth in our lives. The ninth commandment assumes that you know that there is a truth. The ninth commandment assumes that there is an objective, absolute truth to all material reality and spiritual reality, and that what we say needs to conform to that truth. Not a very popular idea. But Christ claims to be the truth. And so all of us must decide whether we are going to bear true witness to the truth or bear false witness. When you look at the Ninth Commandment, it's interesting, if you go back to the, especially commentators from earlier ages, biblical commentators, they always point out the fact very consistently that the most direct application of this commandment is not to the mundane nuts and bolts of daily life, but really to the courtroom. That this commandment was given to address what you do with your mouth when you speak in a courtroom. You could translate this, you shall not commit perjury. You shall not bear false witness before the judge. It's hard to overestimate how important this commandment was to Jewish society and really the concept behind it to any society among sinners. In ancient times, people that were accused of crimes had very little protection. Probably the closest thing in recent history we could think of would be maybe the Old West in America. The kind of frontier justice that took place where often it was the guy with the best gun and the quickest draw that administered justice. And even in other cultures, going farther back, it often was the case that one witness with one accusation could bring down punishment on another person. And in earlier, more ancient, more primitive systems of justice, ours has gotten so complicated, but even in the simpler ones, issues like bribery or coercion of judges and witnesses was a real big issue. And think back in those days, they didn't even have what we would call forensic evidence. There was no CSI department. You didn't have databases of fingerprint information. You didn't have DNA studies being done. You didn't have video surveillance cameras. Often, people would be condemned just by one person's witness, and the system was very often corrupt. It was often a he-said-she-said situation, or a he-said-he-said, or a she-said-she-said. The accuser's word against the word of the accused. And so you can see why the integrity of the witness was such an important issue. So many of the crimes that were committed both in biblical times and even in other cultures, so many of the crimes were punished by death. You can see how important it was that a false accusation be, de- be recognized as a murderous action. So God's law was given. God gave us his law in order to establish justice among sinners. And his principles of justice are laid out in a very overarching form here in the Ninth Commandment then spelled out in other commandments. In those commandments, God said that when you 
when somebody is accused of a crime, of a wrong, that he be tried before a jury of elders. And that that trial before the jury of elders happened at the city gates. And most of these communities are small communities. So you knew your elders and you saw them trying cases at the city gates. So justice was an issue of everyday life. It wasn't shut away in some distant iron, you know, ivory tower type uh, courtroom somewhere. It was something you saw operating every day. As accusations were made and people were defended. God's law required two or three witnesses in order to convict. Think about how many crimes must have gone unpunished if you didn't have all this kind of forensic evidence that we have in trials today. If you're really basing everything pretty much on witnesses, if you had to have two or three witnesses to convict, there would be many crimes that that had no witnesses or only one witness. And that's how important it was in, in God's law that the accused have his rights protected that he would rather allow criminals go, crim, crimes and criminals to go unpunished than to have somebody falsely accused easily. And just to show how hard it was to be an accuser in biblical times, if you accuse somebody of a crime that had a, uh, a uh, death penalty attached to it, you would actually, and really any penalty, you would actually have to, if in a death penalty, you would have to cast the first stone First of all, think about how hard it would be to accuse somebody of murder if you had to actually flip the switch on the electric chair. And if you uh, committed a crime and you were shown in the course of the investigation, in the trial, if you were shown to be falsely accusing that person, you would receive the penalty that you tried to bring upon the other person, according to God's law. All this to show that this is a big deal to God. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not attack another person with a false accusation. When we think back to the third commandment, we said then that the third commandment, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, we said that that was given to protect the name of God because the name of God was so precious, so highly valuable to protect God's name, the third commandment was given. Here, the ninth commandment is given because In a lesser sense, your name is so valuable. Your neighbor's name is so valuable. And so God's law is given to protect your name. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 77, says, What does the ninth commandment require? It requires us to tell the truth and to maintain it and to promote it and our own and others' reputation. protect your reputation and the reputation of others. It really makes sense, doesn't it, if we think of the Ten Commandments as we have been saying, that they're a summary of all of God's will, of all of God's laws, that there would be one commandment devoted to how we use our tongue. Because our tongue is so powerful to do damage. It literally, when you use your tongue to attack someone else, it is assault with a deadly weapon in a very real sense in terms of Scripture. Proverbs 25, verse 18 says, A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. 
Of course, James chapter 3 says, The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I'll be honest with you. I would rather that you stab me in the back with a knife than that you falsely accuse me in a way that greatly damages my reputation. You stab me in the back with a knife, that wound will heal and I can forgive you and all the damage can be put away. But if you ruin my reputation, you ruin my life. That's why we have a commandment to protect our name and our reputation. But, of course, as a summary of all of God's law, we've seen with the other commandments that when the commandment says you shall not commit adultery, in a sense, that's the highest sin of that category, but there are many sins that are quote-unquote lesser sins of the same sort. We saw that with adultery, that it included all kinds of other sexual sins as God defines them, even to the point of condemning the lust in our hearts. When we looked at the commandment on murder, in a sense, that was the highest sin of that category, but all other types of violence and, and attacking our neighbor, even to the point of hating your neighbor in your heart, is condemned by that commandment. And so here, even though its most direct application is to bearing false witness in a court of law and damaging a reputation in that means, in a sense, it contains every other way of bringing damage to the name of ourselves or our neighbors or deceiving in general as you break down the commandment. Historically, Christian ethicists have talked about four different categories of lies, bearing false witness in the more general sense. The first category is what they call the malicious lie. That's what we typically think of when we think of a lie. A lie that is told in order to make yourself look better, to glorify yourself out of pride, or a lie that is told in order, or a deception that's carried out in order to obtain something that you can't otherwise get legitimately, or to harm someone else for your own benefit. Those are malicious lies. Those are the easy ones to identify. It's interesting, and I, I, I only address this because historically the church has wrestled with this way back, but more recently it's not even been an issue. There's a second category of lies. It's called the jocular lie or the joking lie. That's when you tell a joke. You're actually saying something that's not true, but your intent is not really to deceive. Your intent is to entertain, to be humorous. Some of my favorite lies, if I can use that phrase, are pranks. I love pranks. I love those prank shows where they, they, they totally deceive somebody for comic effect. Even, um, you know, ma magicians, when they do magic acts, it's all lies, it's all deception, it's all illusion. But we don't consider that nearly in the category of malicious lying. The early church, interestingly, if you go back to the early church, the early church was opposed to the theater in Roman culture. And it wasn't because, primarily, because of the immorality and degradation and all the horrible stuff that might have been portrayed in the theater. Certainly was a lot of that, just as there is today. But it wasn't that as the primary reason. The primary reason they were opposed to the theater, they were opposed to all theater. It's because, they said, the actors and actresses are pretending to be somebody they're not. Therefore, it's deception. Therefore, it's breaking the Ninth Commandment. Now, again, we wouldn't take it to that degree today, but you can see how the early church was really wrestling what it means to be truthful in every case, in every part of our lives. The third category that they've talked about is the category, what we'd call the polite lie. 
or probably more commonly called the little white lie. Those are little untruths we tell out of politeness or social convention or often for the sake of the feelings or, or the, the, the thinking of somebody else. For instance, does this dress make me look fat? You've heard that, husbands, haven't you? How did you like my dessert, anyway? How do you answer that? What's the loving response to that? And I think, again, there's no easy answer to this. Lies are always wrong. There is a sense in which you say lies are always wrong. But would you tell something that's not true out of kindness and concern for the feelings of another person? I told my wife just a couple weeks ago, when she asked me those kind of questions, I often just don't answer. And she said, hmm, now I know what you mean when you don't answer those questions. <laughs> Shouldn't have told her that. Which actually brings me to the last category. It's called the lie of necessity. And this is the big controversial one. You guys knew I'd touch on this one. This is when you lie in order to deliver somebody else. You think of, of course, the, the most famous recent example probably is Corey Ten Boom and her family. World War II, they're the ones who hid Jews in their home and lied about them being in their home to the Germans to prevent them from being taken away to the death camps. And we've always looked at Corey Ten Boom and her family as heroes of the faith for what they did, but they lied. They deceived. And we wrestle with that. Was that the right thing to do? I was, uh, used to be kind of a, a World War II buff. I used to love reading histories of World War II. Military strategy is full of deception. When, when the Allies were preparing their troops to invade Europe at D-Day, they sent out many false communications about the date and the time, the place of when they were gonna, where they were going to invade in order to deceive the enemy. Was that wrong? Was that bearing false witness? Christians wrestle with these things. St. Augustine, interestingly, he set the tone for centuries upon centuries of church ethics by saying that you should never tell a lie, even in that situation, that the only thing, probably the best thing to do, he said, in that situation is to say nothing. But I've already illustrated in my comments to my wife that when you say nothing, you're actually communicating something. If Corey Ten Boom had said nothing when they demanded to know, she would have actually been telling them something. And so it doesn't really solve the problem but I think as we should, we go to the scriptures and say, what do the scriptures have to say about this problem of lies of necessity? And when you go to the scriptures, what you see is these kinds of things happened often in biblical history. These kinds of dilemmas. The Israelite midwives, when they were asked why they hadn't put the male infants to death as they were ordered to by Pharaoh, they came up with a whopper. I mean, I, I can't believe they bought this one. Oh, they're just hardy women, and they give birth so fast. They give birth, and we didn't get there in time, and so we weren't able to put them to death. But in Scripture, they're commended for their act of faith by deceiving Pharaoh. When you think also of Rahab, of course, she lied about where the spies had come from, where they were going. She said she didn't know, and she certainly didn't admit that they were hiding on her roof when the king of Jericho sent his soldiers to round them up. And she was commended for her faith. We also look at military strategy in scripture. I love the story of Joshua attacking the city of Ai. When he attacked the city of Ai, he said, told his soldiers that were laying siege of the city to stage a false retreat. 
And when the men from the city of Ai came out to chase them, pursue them, then he ambushed them from behind. Great military strategy, but it's deception. And God blessed it. I bring all this up to say I don't have any easy answer for you. There's been centuries of Christians wrestling with what do you do in these situations? Is this right? Is this wrong? The scriptures seem to say that there is a sense, though, where you do choose the lesser of evils. Lying is evil. But it's better to choose to lie than to allow Hitler to put millions of Jews to death or to allow Hitler to overrun Europe. You're you're put in a very difficult situation of choosing between two evils and which one is lesser of the two evils. That's reality in a fallen world. But I will say this. I would hazard to guess that none of you are going to have to make a call on a decision like that during your life. It might happen, and God give you grace and wisdom if it does. But really, the rest of my time this morning, I want to focus on the 99 and 9 tenths percent of the time that it's pretty clear whether you should tell a lie or not. And so let's talk about the things that we face in our daily life. How do we daily bear false witness against our neighbor? Let me give a list of those kinds of sins quickly. Boasting, bragging, deceiving others, bearing false witness about our strengths and our accomplishments in order to look better and to glorify ourselves. Flattery, when you bear false witness about other people's strengths and accomplishments in order to manipulate them. Gossip or slander or libel, where you either bear false witness about them, say something that's true about somebody, untrue about somebody else, or even saying something that's true about them in order to damage their reputation. To attack their name. Hypocrisy, when you bear false witness about your own piety, your own spirituality, your own righteousness in order to look better for pride's sake. And of course, there's the worst lie is when you actually distort or cover up or deny the truth of the word of God. I've often said that the deepest, darkest pits of hell are inhabited by false teachers and false prophets who claim to speak for God, but then either distort or deny his word. Basically, we live as liars among liars. That's why we need licenses. That's why we need contracts. That's why we need passports. It's why we need notary publics for even. You know, it's, we need these things because we are liars. And we continue to lie every day to glorify ourselves and to tear others down. We live with a made-up face that we show to the world. How do we stand before a holy God? Psalm 15 says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. That's who may approach a holy God. None of us even begin to qualify even for what we've done already this morning. But Jesus Christ said he came to bear witness to the truth. And he did it by his words, and he did it by his thoughts, he did it by his attitudes, he did it by his actions. He bore witness to the truth perfectly every moment of his life. He's the only one who deserved to stand before a holy God. And yet at his trial, when he was falsely accused, notice, he was falsely accused, 
As someone from uh, the, the first service said to me, that was Satan's greatest moment, wasn't it? He used his, his greatest weapon. He caused people in authority to bear false witness against Christ, to lie. The father of lies used lies to bring about the death of the Messiah and the Son of God. He did not speak up to defend himself. He voluntarily allowed himself to be tried, convicted, and sent to the cross. And there he willingly died, even though he could have called legions of angels down to defend himself. He willingly died for the sins of us, particularly the lies that we live by day in and day out. He died for us as liars so that we are forgiven. Tell the truth about your sins. Confess your sins, and God has promised that the blood of Christ will pay for your sins, and you will be forgiven and pardoned. Having forgiven us, he's now given us a new mission. He has delivered us from a life of bearing false witness. Guess what our new mission is all about? Bearing witness to the truth. That's why he saved you. So that you could stop bearing false witness so that you can bear witness to the truth. It's the opposite of breaking the ninth commandment. Love the truth, proclaim the truth, protect and defend the truth, and promote the truth. Live by the truth. A few years ago, I saw a movie, and I always hesitate to do this when it's a, this kind of an example. I'm always fearful that somebody's going to say, hey, Pastor Dan referred to that movie. I, he must be recommending that. I think I'll go watch it. Please don't go watch this movie. <laughs> I'm going to preface it. Please don't go watch this movie. I heard about this movie. As a matter of fact, I read a lot about it. I was intrigued by the storyline. The, the name of the movie, maybe some of you have seen it already, it's called The Invention of Lying. I was intrigued by it for a couple reasons. One was the storyline of the movie. The second reason is because I knew it was done, it was written and produced, and the main character, was, it was acted by somebody who is a loud, out, out there and loud atheist. And so... I was really fascinated because the storyline was basically, if you know the story at all, it's about an alternate reality that looks just like our reality. But in that reality, everybody always tells the truth all the time, no matter what. Nobody has ever lied. And you have the main character, a guy named Mark. And Mark is kind of a loser in this other reality. He can't pay his rent. He can't keep his job. And in desperation, he goes to the bank one day in order to withdraw all the money he had so that he can pay half of his rent. And he goes up to the teller and he says, I'd like to withdraw all the money from my account. And she says, well, I'm sorry, but our computer system's down. I can't, uh, I can't work in the system, so you're just going to have to tell me how much is in your account so I can give it to you. Of course, in a society where everybody always tells the truth, that would work. Well, it, and it, the movie portrays it as this you know, kind of the serpent and the apple kind of moment. I don't know, but it, there, there, there's, his eyes light up, and this idea hits him for the first time in his life. You know what? I could lie. I could say, he didn't know what the word for it was. It's, I just tell her something that's not true here. And so he told her twice as much as what was in his account, so he'd have enough to pay his rent. And to his amazement, she actually gave it to him. And so he walks out, and he gets a big smile on his face, and all, it was a life-transforming moment for Mark. He starts lying about everything. And he starts finding out because everybody believes everything he says. He can get anything he wants. He can do anything he wants. And life is really good. Well, then as they carry the story on, they hit a crucial scene about halfway through the movie where Mark is sitting by the, the deathbed of his much-loved mother, dearly loved his mother, and she's dying. 
And as she's in her dying moments, he is just, and it's really actually kind of a moving moment in the movie where he, he's actually just, just so moved by her fear and her despair because she believed that, you know, and in, in, of course in this reality, she knew that when she died, she was going into utter nothingness, no future. She's going to cease to exist. And in that existential fear of the moment, she's just despairing and he feels so badly for her, he decides to lie. He says, you know what, don't worry about it, Mom. When you die, you actually go to another place that's beautiful beyond your imagination. And you're wealthy beyond your imagination. And you own this mansion, and you get to live in this mansion. And all of your loved ones and all your friends are there. And you get to spend all eternity with them. And there's no pain, and there's no sorrow, and there's no, no bad things at all in this place. And because everybody always tells the truth in that reality, she believes him, and she dies at peace and content. Well, then they pull back the camera, and you realize that as he's sharing this with her, all the doctors and nurses were standing around listening. And of course, since everybody always tells the truth, everybody believes him. They say, well, tell us more. How do you know this? And so he's kind of on the, caught on the spot, and he says, well, there's a man up in the sky. And he watches over us all the time, and he told me these things. And so later, he becomes, you know, all these nurses and doctors go out and start telling everybody, and all of a sudden, Mark becomes this great prophet. Everybody's showing up, thousands of people in his front yard, showing up to find out what this man up in the sky wants to tell them. And so he comes up with ten rules. And basically says, as long as the man up in the sky says, as long as you don't do, you know, really, three really bad things, then you'll get to go and have a mansion in the sky after you die. This really excites people for a while, but what Mark begins to realize is that people start checking out. They only care about their mansion in the sky, and they stop caring about their life, and it starts to ruin the world. And at the end of the movie, I was really wondering, where is this atheist going with all this? It's obvious what he's saying about what we believe. But where is he going with this? And what was really striking to me is the end of the movie was just as dark and despairing and meaningless as you expect it to be. Mark ends up having to tell everybody, hey, I made it up. It's all a big lie. And that's how the movie ends. Well, he does get the girl, which I think in an atheist worldview, that's the only happy ending to any life is you get the girl in the end. But I thought, that's where this world is going. That's what they believe. That's what they believe about us. But Jesus Christ said, John 8, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus says, I am the truth. I have, was born for this purpose to tell you the truth. Believe my words, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then he sends us out into the world to be truth tellers to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth in every area of life by his grace by the strength of his spirit at work in us it's our mission to bear witness to the truth he says let your you should let your yes be yes and your no be no be known as people of high integrity so that when you share the gospel about jesus dying on the cross for our sins you're going to have credibility with them because you're truth-tellers. The life of the believer is all about truth. It's all about honesty, integrity, genuineness, and real authenticity. And real authenticity is defined by God's word. 
George Orwell, who wasn't really a beacon of truth himself, but he did say this at one time. He said, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. Go and be revolutionaries, Jesus says, but do it in love. Speak the truth in love, as we read there in Ephesians 4. Having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is as good for building up that it may give grace to those who hear. You know, one of the attempts at humor, which I wasn't really that impressed with in this movie, The Invention of Lying, a lot of the humor revolved around people that tell the truth all the time, no matter how blunt, no matter how embarrassing, no matter how awkward or how inappropriate the truth might be. They told the truth all the time. Had a few funny moments, but largely I thought they could have done a lot more with that. But, you know, the point of that movie, you know, the point for us is that we're not just to speak the truth. Jesus doesn't say go out there and tell the people the truth no matter what. Speak the truth in love. Do it in a way that you're serving and ministering to the needs of the people that you're speaking to. And that takes a lot of wisdom. I'm going to give you four questions that I've tried to memorize myself for about how to speak the truth in love. When you're talking to somebody, and especially if you're talking to somebody about a third person, four rules. One, is it true? Check yourself before you say it. Is it true? Secondly, if it's it's true, is it loving? Is what I'm about to say loving for this person that I'm talking to and or the person that I'm talking about? Thirdly, is it necessary? Because there are a lot of things that we could say in truth and in love for that person, but really, because we really understood where that person was, not necessary to say it right now. Not what they need to hear right now. And then fourth, if you are talking about somebody who's not present, would you say this about this person if they were there listening to you? If we could just follow those four rules, is it true? Is it loving? Is it necessary? And would I say it about this person if you were standing here right now? That would take care of a lot of our violations of the ninth commandment. But really what takes care of our violations of the ninth commandment is the blood of Christ. And that's the message that he's given us to take to the world. We must not bear false witness. We must instead bear true witness. Jesus said he was sent into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. And then he turns to us and says, you shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Or as Matthew 24 says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations And then the end will come. Go tell the truth in all areas of life, but especially in relation to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these laws that are given to bring conviction, to show us how greatly we need your grace. But Lord, having been renewed in your grace, empower us. Give us a deeper understanding of your truth, how it applies to every area of our lives. And Lord, give us a greater boldness to tell others about Jesus who was sent here to bear witness to the truth, to be the truth. And Lord, help us to have the courage to tell others that when they tell the truth about their sins to him, they can be forgiven just as we are. Father, thank you for this mission that you've granted to us. Equip us, embolden us, and use us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.